Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we're going up to Maine to talk to one of our favorite people in the great state of Maine, Dr. Joe Kunkel. And uh, Dr. Kunkel, for our listeners uh, out there, may remember, is a, a, a specialist and a scientist and an expert on lobsters and lobster shell disease specifically. Uh, Dr. Kunkel is an emeritus professor at UMass Amherst and works very closely with the University of New England Biddeford, uh, a real pro in understanding the science of American fisheries, particularly in the main area. Can't wait to talk to him, Tyler. Can't wait at all. This is this is always a treat. Uh, whenever you have a, 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 a PhD researcher like Joe, up there in his uh, basement he's got his laboratory working up there in maine we had to check in it's been several weeks here he's been crunching away on his uh his research so we wanted to have him back on the show update our audience on his research but also just kind of talk to him about the state of affairs up there in maine uh and also any sort of comparisons we can make between lobster shell disease and this covid uh epidemic that we are in the midst of. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new Coastal Resiliency Department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Well, Joe, it's great to have you back on the American Shoreline Podcast. Thanks for making time for us. My pleasure. Well, before we let, let's let's kick off with an update. Uh, just about how things are going on the Maine coast. It's the it's beginning of summer up there. Uh, how does the world look on the Maine shoreline? How is everybody doing in the great state of Maine? Well, of course, all the lobstermen have been putting out their pots, and uh, um, of course, they're you know up here we have a limit of 800, 800 uh, pots per uh, per lobsterman. And, uh, and so there's some discussion up here about uh, perhaps limiting the number of, of uh, pots or limiting the season uh, in order to uh, improve the efficiency of the whole 
procedure. Uh, you know, it's uh, lobstering is is fairly beneficial to the lobsterman, but uh, season to season, you know, the price goes up and down, and uh, you know, sometimes they're uh, in the money, and sometimes they're uh, paying too much for gas. And so there, whole, there is a lot of discussion about improving efficiency. Joe, uh, I have to, you know, before we get into all your work and stuff, I like this just kind of getting a, a vibe check on the main shoreline uh, there. So the lobstermen, you say, are starting to go back out. They are fishing. I suppose it is true. If, if you're, there's one or two of you on the boat, you can probably do it. Probably fairly low-risk activity, just, just the lobstering itself. But we did learn about this like overall throughout the COVID crisis and covering it on the news on CoastalNewsToday.com. Ladies and gentlemen, go and subscribe. Uh, we've learned that there's an overall supply chain. There's the, the lobsters come off the boat and they go into a distribution facility and the distribution facility sends these things all over the world, really. Uh, have you heard just being a resident there? Uh, is are people being struck by? Is this resulting in specific unemployment where you're at? What's the what's the state of the of the lobster economy feeling like? Well, with the COVID nineteen, we we don't really want people to come up to Maine, <laughs> right? And uh, so things are set up. So, for instance, uh, people are not able to uh, rent uh, campsites unless they're a Maine resident. So you have a lot of Maine, Mainers actually having a good time. The, the, the word out is Mainers, enjoy your state because you're not going to be overrun with tourists this summer. Really? So and, um, and of course that means uh, um, more Mainers will be eating lobster. <laughs> Right. Then, uh, and coming here t from out of state to eat lobster, so that is a problem. But um, we, th the industry here, is really set up to send lobsters all across the nation, as you say, and live lobsters also. I mean, you can send them anywhere frozen, but uh, people like to have live lobsters in their grocery store. You know, you go up and you knock on a tank and. They don't there's much little, do there's anything. A little, there's but, a little dude uh, in there. Anyway, you like to, to do that. And um, so that's not... So there's it, it a certain amount of worry about what is actually going to happen in terms of the supply of lobster and where it's going to be sold because uh, we're not selling it to China. We're not selling it to Europe. And we have to basically sell it out of state to make the big bucks because in state we just mainly have our residents uh, a lot of the seasonal uh, influx of campers and visitors uh, is is going to be suppressed this summer hmm. well, yeah I, I think that's the first Tyler that I've heard of a state that so you're saying that in the state campground system uh, you can make a reservation and go camping in Maine if you're a Maine resident, but not an out-of-state resident. Is that is that really? I didn't. Well, if you you can 
you have to be you have to be a, a two week uh, uh, quarantine quarantine. Wow. When you come to the state. Okay. Well, as far is... as I know, I mean, I, yeah. Uh, my wife mainly keeps up with the that local news of those such things, but. Uh, and I know she knows, Joe. I've huh? heard. I've heard your wife. I've, I've heard about your wife. I know she knows yes. these things. She's a bright lady. She is a bright lady. So, <clears throat> last year, uh, can did you have a feel for how the how the lobster uh, industry landings were? Uh, last season um if last I... season they were a little bit off the peak but they um it was a the the price of lobster was up and so the lobstermen made a good showing last year i've heard the uh, the value of the of the fishery last year was in excess of 600 million dollars wow. i think i think that's correct yes. for 2019 yes which was not the top. I think the top was closer to uh, closer to um, a billion. But yeah, that's a big number. And yeah. uh, the landings have been in excess of a hundred million pounds. I think when we talked to the lobster folks uh, for for a number of years in a row here, it's it's pretty prime time yes. lobstering in in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, Joe, how's the? Tell us about the state of the the population. Uh, I know you finished your 2019 uh, ground fish survey that you do with uh, with NOAA and the National Marine Fisheries Service. Your annual uh, trip out into the Gulf of Maine in the in, in, in northeast waters, uh, collecting and surveying uh, lobster, other other species as well, but. Uh, How's the how's the state of the fishery? Can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and what the trends look like overall? Well, the the trends are sort of uh, what we've talked about in the past. That is that. Uh, well, first of all, there are a lot of lobsters out there, and, and uh, we're we're bringing them up in the trawls. Of course, we're doing the so-called. Um, it's not really offshore, but it's beyond 50. Typically, we're beyond 50 meters. and uh, Water depth, you mean? Of depth. Yeah. Uh, whereas the state, um, the state of Maine and uh, the state uh, the, or the province of Nova Scotia will do their inshore uh, surveys and I, I think that Canada also does an offshore survey, but uh, anyway, we cooperate with them, and uh, they allow us to come into their water uh, and do a survey of the entire Gulf of Maine, uh, at least to 50 meter depth, beyond 50 meter depth, uh, and with uh, there are plenty of lobsters. There are plenty of lobsters, and uh, we find we found sort of little hot spots of uh, uh, of shell disease in all locations uh, in this so-called. I think we talked before about the Ring of Fire. There's uh, in the in the in the center of the Gulf of Maine. There there are what they call deeps. There are several deeps, and in those deeps, you don't find lobsters. They don't. 
they don't go that deep in the Gulf of Maine. On the outside of George's Bank, actually, there's some very deep va- uh, sort of uh, valleys or uh, where, and deeper than the deeps of the Gulf of Maine. And actually, down there, you do find lobsters, huh. quite large lobsters. You know, some of the the humongous twenty uh, five pounders and that. Uh, are probably producing a lot of eggs, but uh, they're never really uh, commercially uh, viable as a as an item to sell. Is that because it's so far out there? It's just hard to get. Um. Well, there are there are uh, lobstermen that go out to the outer banks of uh, George's Bank. And also on the inner inner side of George's Bank, uh, and they go out for an entire week. Uh, whereas almost all inshore lobstermen are only out for the day. They they go out in the early morning and they come back uh, sometime afternoon. And uh, so they their lobsters are absolutely fresh because they uh, they don't have to store them for more than. Uh, the time that they go out and come back to shore. Uh, the, the ones that uh, go out for a week, they have huge, their, their traps are much larger, about, oh, really? I'd say, five or six times the size of a normal lobster trap. And, uh, and they service those uh, while they're out there for an entire week and then come back and they store them uh, in their hold uh, for for that time, and bring them back uh, to the processors. Hmm. So when you're up in Maine and you're looking for lobster, go to the inshore guys. They're <laughs> they're fresher. They're to the dock sooner. Those are the guys to get the lobsters from. Uh, Joe, let's talk about the state of the population. I think in the in the conversations we have had. You have been tracking the incidence or pre- prevalence of lobster shell disease, um, which is a potentially a fatal condition for older lobsters, especially uh, breeding female lobsters, but uh, can 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 affect the marketability of the oysters. So, I mean, the oysters, the lobsters. So. When you're you've got your data back, and I've uh, started to try to read and understand uh, the latest information that you've shared, and folks out there, Joseph Kunkel on Facebook is a great follow. Uh, he covers there a it lot. Is. He follows. He does a lot of cool stuff. And if you want to get a sense of his research, it's a great place to check in with Joe Dr. Kunkel. It's a great place to see the survey maps and the incidence of, of this disease, but. Uh, can you t- tell us anything about what you learned in the 2019 trawl season and uh, uh, about this disease? How is, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Can you tell? What, what did you learn? Well, um, so we have the 2018 spring and fall. Uh, the spring was only we were just developing our protocols. But the fall was a, sort of a complete survey uh, all the way from Cape Hatteras up to the tip of northern 
tip of the Gulf of Maine. And uh, so 2019, we had both a spring and a fall. And uh, they were consistent. There's no dramatic shift between those three seasons other than the fact that uh, you're always going to have more shell disease in the springtime because they have, they typically will molt in the summertime. And so in the fall, when we survey them, uh, they have relatively recently molted. And so you see relatively little shell disease. However, when they overwinter, the shell disease has the opportunity to develop, and they're not typically not molting during that colder period, but the shell disease is progressing. So that in the springtime, many of the lobsters that don't look, uh, didn't look like they had shell disease will have developed the shell disease more obviously by the springtime. And so in the springtime, you find more. And so since we only have three uh, complete data sets for that, um, and we were looking forward to having this, this spring, spring 2020, to see whether it was consistent or getting worse or getting better, uh, basically, I have to say nothing has changed. Uh, the distribution is about the same. It's in this ring of fire. Uh, uh, you just see more of it in the uh, spring than you do in the fall. Which makes, so, which makes I don't complete know, sense. If you say no news is good news, uh, basically is nothing new about the distribution. That I can say. Interesting. Uh, and of course, uh, there was another, I believe, Joe, just to, uh, well, a couple things that I want to say for our, for our audience, our valued listeners here. Uh, go back if you are, if, if this whole term lobster shell disease is foreign to you, uh, we did a whole show with Joe about lobster shell disease, and it's very interesting. But Joe, for our audience's benefit, as a reminder, could you give us the quick two, eleva elevator uh, explanation of what lobster shell disease is for our audience members who maybe didn't listen to that other show? Sure. So lobster shell disease is a disease of the so-called exocuticle, the cuticle on the outside of the lobster that uh, basically, when you handle a lobster, you say, wow, that's pretty hard. And that's because you're probably getting a, um, a, older, a lobster older in its molting cycle when it has a real thick cuticle. But when it, as, as soon as it molts, it now has a relatively thin cuticle. And at that time, I think... That is the vulnerability stage when shell disease sort of is uh, seeded 
in the in the animal's cuticle. Uh, bacteria will land on the cuticle, uh, and if the cuticle is vulnerable, they will land and start a little colony. That colony then uh, develops a little divot in the cuticle uh, that develops into a lesion. The lesions are circular, and once it makes its way through the cuticle, it can induce um, a response from the lobster. The, the lobster cuticle will uh, discolor and become dark, so little blacks, black uh, melanization, the same sort of melanization that gives you freckles, or when, you know, if you're a, a sun worshiper, you know, uh, the melanin in your tanned skin is basically the same sort of process. It's a, a melanization of these lesions uh, makes them look like a speckled, speckled with uh, uh, little black spots. And, like a, like a uh, and then yeah. when you cook it, when you cook the lobster, uh, usually uh, when people steam a lobster or boil a lobster, it turns into this beautiful cherry red. But a shell disease lobster will have these lesions uh, that can be small or uh, maybe a millimeter in diameter, uh, or they can get as large as uh, several um, tens of millimeters, and uh, and then the frequency of them can increase so that uh, they will all start merging together and you'll have a huge lesion uh, of several lesions merged. That doesn't sound tasty, and, uh, Joe. And it really looks very ugly. So Omega, those, those does... lobsters are not commercially sal saleable. Yeah. And, and, and so for the, the folks out there listening, really, if you've got access to your computer, go on Facebook. It's Joseph G. Kunkel, K-U-N-K-E-L. And you'll see a posting about the distribution of the sampling and where the disease was found. But what is really cool, if you click on uh, Joe's post about the groundfish survey uh, for 2019, where this data was collected, there are pictures of disease hundreds of pictures of disease shells in 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 3d where you can spin them around and look on the inside and the outside and see what lobster shell and, disease and looks like why don't you describe that peter take a talk with pictures what's what <clears throat> are right. we what does it well, look like i am not of course an expert but i i will just tell you what what it it's amazing these, these 3d model scans of these deals and i think uh it's hard to you see this pitting, this color discolorization. Pitting is this, a good term. It's almost it's, like rust pitting. It's kind of like rust pitting, and it turns black, and it has this melanin component, which I right. guess it's trying to protect itself from the disease. But uh, they don't look healthy, you know. And uh, it's truly a case of of, of a disease. And uh, uh, and and. Joe, it may not kill the lobster, although if it's persistent enough for the older lobsters, I think you had said breeding females, which don't molt often enough, it, it can be fatal to a lobster, but it sure the hell screws up the marketability of these things. Like, you don't want to buy one of these things, right? And, so. 
and basically you don't see the lobsters that it kills because once you kill a lobster it's going to be eaten by all the other uh, scavengers and whatever at the bottom of the ocean so um, you only see the ones that have survived to the point of capture hmm. so which is Good a point. very big point in terms of this, the statistics of just how much shell disease is out there because we're missing a whole component of the ones that have died right well let me ask you so this has been you've been investigating this for some years now it is part of i think the literature it is i think reported on a little bit in the press in in maine but how is the fishery and the and and the lobstermen reacting to the presence of this disease do you feel like they're generally aware are they concerned about it uh what's the reaction from the guys who try to make a living off this fishery well they're they're generally aware of it um however they don't particularly talk about it much because uh they're more interested in you know like many fishermen they don't like to tell you where they fish <laughs> and uh because if they've if they've brought in a big haul, they don't you don't want to tell the the uh, competition where you got it. Uh, but uh, basically, they leave the shell disease lobsters mainly at sea. Although they they do get to uh, the the ones that are more mildly uh, lesioned will get into the processors, and they basically. Uh, send them to the cannery rather than to the live uh, sale across the country. Uh, and the lobstermen, uh, of course, south of Cape Cod, are, have you know, there are no more lobstermen south of Cape Cod. Uh, the lobster fishery south of Cape Cod has totally collapsed. So basically they are worried because, uh, you know, this recent huge population of lobsters is, has been a boon to them, but um, you know shell disease is looming there, uh, and they're they're worried about it. And uh, you know some of them are diversifying. Uh, another place they're diversifying is into raising kelp. They're raising kelp, um, uh, which you know in the end. Uh, um, First of all, it's done usually off-season. So uh, the season when you can raise kelp or and harvest kelp is does not conflict with the lobstering season. So uh, they are, you know, if, if the lobstering were totally healthy and they weren't worried, they probably wouldn't go into kelp. Right. Right. They're, they're, uh, you almost can already see an adaptation taking place, which is definitely interesting. So, Joe, I have a question about, do you have, you know, live, do you have a tank of lobsters with the disease that you can just kind of monitor? I'm wondering, well, the first thing, the first question that came to mind is like, okay, if I go to Sea Fresh here in Ojai, California, where they have a lobster tank, and I go and I order a lobster out of that tank. Uh, it came from Maine. Uh, could a a, uh, a slightly pitted 
<laughs> slightly uh, shell diseased lobster, would that would the uh, the the visible evidence of shell disease grow throughout the period of time that that lobster, you know, from when it's caught to when it might inevitably be served, which I can imagine might be, you know, a month later. I guess you can keep these things alive for a pretty long time. That, that came to mind. Hold on to that well, question. Go ahead. Go ahead. What? what? Yes, the, it definitely could. And that was actually one of the projects that we were going to carry out this spring by me bringing more of the uh, early uh, shell-diseased individuals. Now, again, um, some of the reason that they're shell-diseased um, depends upon how severe, I think we talked about this the last time, how severe their lack of storage of calcium carbonate was right. in the previous molting cycle. Yeah, we did. We definitely talked, talked about, about it. That. So... When we take an animal in the springtime that is only showing mild pitting, that means that that particular lobster was a little bit healthier in terms of its storage of calcium carbonate. So, um, you know, we were planning on doing experiments in the laboratory, taking mildly pitted lobsters and following it. We did that last year on... Uh, we only had two lobsters. We said, let's try it. So we tried it. Uh, me and my colleague at uh, Southern Maine Community College, he's a lobsterman. And so he actually caught this mildly shell disease lobster and had it in his tanks at Southern Maine Community College, and uh, which, which has a wonderful lobster, uh, marine science program. It's a two-year college, but... Um, here at University of New England, we'll accept those students to go on for a bachelor's degree because they've got a wonderful education in marine biology at Southern Maine Community, Community College. Community College. But in any of it. Big shout out. And uh, so, um, so there we had lobster in a tank. Of course, as soon as you put it in a tank, it's not in the wild, it's in your tank. And um, so we control the water that's going to it and from it. And we followed the development of the shell disease. So we could follow the how fast the shell disease was developing. And we only followed it for a month. And uh, you know, we could measure the increase of the, of the shell disease so that um, there new lesions did appear at least lesions that we couldn't see earlier now all of this is being studied taking pictures with a uh, digital camera and so that gets into my research on trying to resolve things on the surface of a lobster with a digital camera because we want we can't put it under an electron microscope, a scanning electron microscope, and see the real high-resolution detail and keep it alive. Uh. So, but we, if we're going to follow a lesion, we have to follow it uh, by uh, a 
picture. And that's what I'm doing with the uh, with these models, the models that uh, you've uh, told the audience to go look at. Right. These models are are one offs. That is, we caught the lobster. Uh, they froze it. I brought it back here, and I took you know about forty seven pictures uh, around the carapace and turned that into a model. Well. We did that for a live lobster last year um, and followed it for a month. And so we could see how the lesions developed over a month. And, it, you know, they were substantial, substantial changes that we could see. And uh, uh, so, so, again, we want to be able to do this at different times of the year. Yeah. In other words, go out and collect. Here you may have different. Well, first of all, the lobsters would potentially be in a have different health of their cuticle to begin with, and uh, so in order to understand the disease in in total, we'd have to uh, study some of the growth of the lesions in the fall and growth of the lesions in the spring. Uh, and to totally understand it. But uh, it certainly is something that's fascinating to me because, uh, you know, I, I grew up uh, as a scientist studying insect cuticle, and now I'm studying the lobster cuticle, which besides having the regular proteins and uh, chitin carbohydrate of, uh, of the insect cuticles, now they have these minerals that uh, make up the... Uh, shell of the of the lobster cuticle, which right. is uh, it's quite is fascinating to for me as a as a physiologist and biochemist to understand that whole process and complexity of 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 the lobster exoskeleton. I completely agree, thank, and thank thank God you're on this because it's a very interesting uh, subject. Well, I, I can talk forever about it. And, uh, you know, if I find anybody who's at all interested, I glomp onto them and I... <laughs> We're glad to be glomped to onto on they, are, they fall off their seat. All right. I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this bacteria that is responsible. Have you, uh, have you uh, identified it? What do we know about it? Is it... Is it yeah, Common? the culprit. The culprit. Who's yeah. the the well? Yeah. We our perpetrator. We, yeah, the perpetrator. What do we got going on here? Okay. Well, you, you brought up a sore subject because <laughs> because I, my theory is that almost any type of bacteria can do the job because it's the vulnerability of the cuticle that has developed huh. under ocean acidification and warming of the oceans that is responsible for this vulnerability of the cuticle and that you don't need mm. a special uh, wow. organism. However, I have colleagues who whose entire career is, is being based on identifying that bacterium <laughs> and and they've they have identified a bacterium that is often found there called, and it's a genus 
So like Escherichia coli uh-huh. is, yeah. e. coli. is E. coli. Mm-hmm. Well, this is aquamarina, and it, uh, and it, and it has SP because species. it's a new species of the genus aquamarina. Huh. And it is found in a good number of the lesions. Um, however, my opinion is that, uh, well, you're going to get a, you know, it doesn't uh, matter. No, no, correlation, not causation is what, what you're saying. It's certainly present, but it may not right. be this particular, yeah, it may not be the species. It's not species dependent as a disease. So, Tyler, someday... We need to and go then, to the National Lobster another, Science Conference and listen to the There's papers. also another investigator who thinks uh, it, it takes a community. <laughs> right. That is, it takes a community of different species of bacteria that to, to actually do the... To cause make the lesion. Well, what I find interesting about the point of view that you're taking, which is, yeah, okay, let's figure out what the... With what the bacteria is, but it's the susceptibility. And this is a concept that is very much in the American mind these days when we talk about COVID-19, about susceptible people, different age or pre-existing conditions. Uh, these lobsters, because of the environmental change, and I think you've talked about the two things that we reviewed last time. It's, it's about the slightest change of pH in the water. Uh, which is attributable to dissolved carbon dioxide in the water column, which uh, produces the, the ions and changes the pH, and slightly different temperature changes, which interfere with the healthy formation of the cuticle and and make that, I mean, is this sound, does this sound right, Tyler? Yeah, and what about food? Does it have to do with food, too? Does it? Oh yeah, well, it did yes. have to do with food. <laughs> That's right. It did have to do with food. Their diet, which had been overly, you know, herring, right? That no, right. anyway, that yeah, right. the, the, the herring, the, the, the diet issue. Diet would be shellfish, so they they sh- would be getting a healthy diet. Very of, good. That's high in Very calcium good, so. carbonate because yeah. they'd be crunching through the the shells of of uh, blue mussels and oysters and whatever and um, taking in some of that uh, ready-made calcium carbonate into their stomachs hmm. and uh, and then being able to store some of that in their endocuticle and that was one of my one of my uh, principal arguments about the function of the developing thick cuticle of of the lobster that is that uh, their inner cuticle uh, called the endocuticle is where they store calcium carbonate for the next molting cycle right right so before the next molting cycle they resorb that and if they don't have the correct diet of uh or, or availability of calcium carbonate and herring are a horrible source of calcium carbonate. So uh, they they barely mm-hmm. have bones. But, so but to good connect, fish oil, well, very good uh, for the heart. To, <laughs> oh, I, I it's good for their herring. their cardiac system is and is very happy to have oh, omega three. How many uh, hearts does a lobster have? I wonder. 
Joe, do you know the answer to that one? Well, of course the, you know. The lobster has multiple hearts, uh, like uh, many, like insects. They're closely related to insects, uh, more so than to any other arthropod. Hmm. Uh, huh. And and uh, like, uh, so they have a dorsal aorta, which is their, you could say it's their major heart, that is like a, a tube that pumps uh, hemolymph, or their blood, right. from the tail end to the head. Hmm. But then at the base of each of their appendages, so at each of their ten legs, their decapods, so they have ten legs, and at the base of their antennae, and at the base of even of their uh, mouth parts, they have little hearts that pump blood up into that. So, you know, you can think of that antenna. There's a whole, it's a, quite a long structure. Yeah. yeah. And they have to pump blood. It, it just can't diffuse you there. Gotta, you got to get it to the extremities. It yeah. To get into the extremities and back. So they have little hearts uh, at the base, little pumps, auxiliary pumps sort of at the base of each of their appendages. So, so our working theory is that and the reason we're talking about herring everybody out there is because it is the bait used by the lobstermen and it is not a natural prey for, for, as Joe's saying, for this animal. And if every lobsterman can put out 800 pots, which is how much they're allowed to do, you can imagine there's tons and tons of herring being placed on the sea bottom in the, it, it, as part of the fishery. And it's changed the diet and the health uh, of the fisher of the fishery, right? The lobster are are a little bit different because well, they don't have that know, high. I mean, are we saying that is this junk we, food we for them? We can say that. I don't is think it like a the Big Mac. <laughs> I don't think the lobstermen would agree. I mean, they don't. All right, all right. They're not. They're not uh, anxious about how underfed the lobsters are with shellfish. Okay. But I think but, that the key thing here, though, I mean, they'll use anything. I mean, they'll use they'll they'll use uh, chicken backs. They'll use um, they they have these things called extenders, bait extenders, uh, like uh, they call it hide hide bait. So if you take uh, the hide of a uh, of a oh, like a pig. Right. Uh, of a pig or of uh, of a cow, uh, beef, uh, and uh, nowadays they make you shave off all the hair because they had a, a horrible incident where oh, no. they had hide bait being used, and uh, wow, the, the somehow they they ate the hair. And uh, it would show up in their GI tract. Yeah. And when they sold split lobsters, uh, uh, it would sometimes show up. In... Not good. You don't want that on your plate. No. You know, that's got cow hair in it. That's a hell. Right. I mean, so, so much of the so... management of this fishery deals with its commercial. And this is the most single valuable dollar fishery in the United States, More worth more money than the incredible salmon fishery in Bristol Bay or any other fi the oysters in the Gulf of Mexico, anything. Well, lucrative wise, uh, right? Money wise, scallops, I'm talking about scallops and lobsters. Sort of. Oh, they bounce back and forth. Off. Okay. 
you know, on a good good lobster year, the lobster will be top. But if if the uh, lobster uh, supply drops, then the scallops, the deep sea scallop, will be the top. All right. So let's let's talk about then. This is a, a point. Uh, about the scientific understanding, I think Tyler, you were you were interested in this comparison with how people are understanding COVID and modeling. So, Tyler, what this yeah. is an interesting question. Well, really. I just I, you know, Joe, I, when we this morning when I was uh, drinking my coffee and thinking about talking to you today, I I was really thinking, you know, uh, you are tracking a. A disease you're modeling it you're trying to figure out how fast it's spreading and if it's spreading and where it's spreading and um you know you're 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 dealing with very you know going out and getting samples which would be akin i think to like testing and uh i'm just curious to know what your observations are uh if you have any observations about the way that uh, we are managing the COVID thing. You here, you are. You're you're you you studied. You're studying exactly. You know something. I th- I would say kind of similar. Obviously, it's a virus. You're studying uh, these lesions, the presence of these lesions, which are I guess caused by bacteria, or maybe not caused by, but there's a presence of bacteria. Uh, but I would love for you to just talk a little bit about uh, that, if you wouldn't well, mind. You know, COVID-19 has really uh, thrown, a, a, thrown a curve at, at me because it, it basically, it's like it's thrown a curve at all sorts of other medical problems. Uh, you know, a lot of people with hernias and this and that and elective surgeries are not having those things done because of COVID-19. Right. Similarly, I, I have, you know, my, my study of the lobster has been dist- essentially stopped in terms of my sampling for the spring 2020 by COVID-19. But what's fascinating about COVID-19 is uh, how it has um, instructed the public in a new vocabulary, the whole vocabulary of false positives and false negatives. It's, um, you know, uh, a year ago, what, five, five, five months ago, if I had mentioned false positives and false negatives, people would say, what? Right. <laughs> now they've become part of our parlance. And uh, see, and uh, so, I mean, in my study of the lobsters, of course, when I'm training people to identify, um, because I can't go out on all of the four legs of the survey, we have other people there who are examining the lobsters and deciding whether they have shell disease or not. And if they have shell disease, they send it to me. If they miss an animal that had shell disease, that would be a false negative. Right. And we don't and typically they don't show up in the in the record because 
they're they're put back in the in the sea, whatever. They're not frozen and sent to me to be analyzed further. So those are false negatives. And then there are also false positives. So um, uh, we try to train the uh, observers on on the, the survey to identify what is shell disease. And sometimes they will freeze an organism that has some other disease. And um, uh, so uh, I think uh, uh, Peter mentioned the uh, the fact that that these shell disease are sort of uh, little divots in the cuticle, and that's true. And some of the false positives are are actual um, some sort of microorganism or encrustation that does not create a lesion. It doesn't create, it, it, it might be thought of as a lesion, but it doesn't have that divot in the cuticle. And, um, and um, so when, it, when they freeze that organism and send it to me, I have, then I can recognize, oh, this is a false positive. Hmm. And um, so I can recognize false positives, uh, but of course it has, to, you know, it doesn't have to be me. They're you know, I could probably train someone else to recognize them, but at the moment, you know, I'm I'm the only assayist who I'm authoritative. Like I'm the end yeah. of the assay. What I love about this is is this is the work of science. You know, this is how you get a handle on a problem, and and the technical nature of the work to be able to sort out the data to understand the the inherent limitations of false positives and negatives in the process of goes along. This is what I love about scientists. Yeah, and, but, and, and you great. can't pull and, your you can't pull the wool over a lobsterman's uh, you know or a fisherman, any type of fisherman. Mm -hmm. I mean if, you if Noah makes a mistake, if Noah makes a mistake and the, the fishermen smell it. They will call out Noah. <laughs> of course they will. <laughs> there's, a, there's a little bit of an antagonistic relation. This is Brian Urisit's program that Tyler has, and, and Brian, who has a show on ASPN. Shaped by the Sea. Is about, this is what his, the, the difference yeah. of view between the, the, the scientists, particularly the regulatory scientists like Noah and NIMS people, and the fishing community. Right. So, you know, there's there is, I think, a long standing uh, antagonistic relationship between regulators broadly and who economic operators close, who can close down the fishery. Yeah. Yeah. Like our 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 Gulf of Maine shrimp fishery closed down for the last four years. Really? So we can't get Gulf of Maine shrimp. Of course, they're the northern shrimp, and so we just have to buy them from Canada, who catches them in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And and uh, and and what's going to happen eventually? You know, I, I'm I'm the bearer of I'm not the only bearer of sad uh, of, of bad fortune. The lobsters are going to be up there, and so all of this dickering about uh, you know lobstering now is uh you know we need to lobster while the lobsters are here in the gulf of maine because 
as far as I can tell, in in 10, 15 years, they're going to all be up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Wow. So this is such an important point. And, and Tyler and I had the, the pleasure of speaking to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on the podcast last week, and the show came out on Memorial Day. We talked about the Maine lobster fishery. He's the U.S. Senator from Rhode yes. Island, of course, knew this issue and knew about the migration of the fishery northward. And I was, I think it was great because he really understands that the migration has been happening and happened from Virginia up through Massachusetts. And now we're north of Cape Cod now with the fishery in lobsters. I mean, it's great that the policy guys know about it. Uh, but in, in the Gulf of Maine, the loss of the shrimp fishery, uh, it's a regulatory decision, obviously, but has to do with the fact that the catches have been declining and is my understanding that is a climate change related impact? Is that is that fair? Is that is that the right? Am I wrong about that, or did I read that? Right? Well, I you know it's clear to me. <clears throat> okay, <laughs> but I'm not a climate denier. Or well, I my brother my brother is a uh, he he's an electronics specialist out in uh, he's retired now, but he was he did did the Alaskan fisheries and uh, his his argument is that well this is just you know climate goes up and climate goes down 10,000 yeah. year cycles and you know uh, so there are those who believe that uh, this is a transitory uh, worsening right part of the of, natural of, of cycle basically the global weather patterns yeah and i and that's and, the big uh, debate that will we'll get over it right so in a sense they're not climate deniers totally but they're saying well you know get it, over it and live with it it's not anthropomorphic it can't be it's not something right. we are doing there's nothing we can change this is all part right. of the and I, I think I read a lot about that a lot, and my, I, I'm certainly not in a position to make any kind of truly scientifically grounded judgment of that. But what I'm, what I'm reading about is the perturbations, the differences in what would be normally within the cycle are happening. The amplitude of the changes is higher than expected. The time period is, is certainly quicker than what has been historically recorded and understood uh, from core samples and all the gas stuff that they do. But, you know, it's hard to believe that you can, you can, you can take the population of the world from 2.5 billion up to 7.5 billion, and you can increase the tonnage of, of uh, CO2 emissions into the atmosphere of 30 gigatons per year and not have some effect on natural system. I mean, this, I mean, I'm just sort of that, get to that point. I mean, look, we, we, there isn't a speck on this planet that we can't change, plow, exploit. We have, as a species, we have a massive impact on the natural world. And it just isn't surprising to me that that these and there, emissions there are, are a number of, of frightening possibilities, which, you know, uh, one gets called out for, oh, why bring up that, you know, but, right. you know, the, like the permafrost and the fact that, yeah. the, you know, you have uh, other 
other gases, uh, ammonia and whatever, that are even worse than CO2. Right. Uh, and that um, such, such changes could be happening uh, catastrophically within a much shorter time frame. Right. Uh, given that you've uh, made the permafrost available. Right. Well, let's not all make it bad news. Let's talk about American eels. And uh, here's a fishery that's on the upswing in Maine. And uh, tell us about the American eel and the propagation of, was it, what is it, elvers? Yeah. The elvers. Yeah. So you've got... The European and the American eel, you've actually got uh, also an Australian eel. You've got, you know, there, there are eels, there are a num- number of Anguilla species. But um, it used to be that and they're all slimy. The European, the European and the American eel were both called Anguilla Anguilla because, uh, uh, you know, they were originally thought to be the same species. But now they are believed to be two separate species, but they both go to basically the same un, unexact spot in the in the Caribbean uh, to uh, lay their eggs. So these things start in American rivers in freshwater systems throughout New England, is my understanding. Yes, is and that the range? Rostrata is an adult in our streams and rivers. And some of them can stay there for, uh, there's, uh, well, there's a European eel, uh, which we used to think of as, as, as the same species, that is said to be 150 years old and lives in a, lives in a, uh, a well in uh, one of the Scandinavian countries. Wow. Somehow it got itself into the well. And it's been living there. You know, and they 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 even give it the name. Uh, I think it A E L E L. It's huh. But it's uh, they can live in fresh water for uh, a lot of years, and uh, as I said, this particular one is said to be 150 years old. But typically, they would live for uh, five or six years in fresh water and then at some point they would decide to go down river go out to the ocean they change from living in fresh water to living in salt water which is a big physiological change and they swim down uh, to uh, Caribbean area and uh, they mate it's never been actually seen, but it's said that the males and the females go down there and they mate down there and spawn eggs. And uh, the elvers then, the, the eggs hatch and they get into the Gulf Stream and come up the coast and the European ones go off to Europe and the American eel stays along the coast. And uh, all along the coast, and when I grew up on Long Island, New York, I lived on a tidal marsh, and every spring, these, what they call glass eels, or elvers, came up the stream. They're, they're almost transparent, but, you know, you can see their eye, and you can see their, 
their uh, basically their uh, backbone. Uh, spine. Their spine. Yeah, and uh, and uh, we used to keep them as pets. I even kept one as a pet all the way through college. I caught it when I was a freshman. Uh, hang on a second. <laughs> Joe, uh, did I'm you get any dates, pet. Joe? I just got to ask. You. So wait a minute. In your in, in college, you had a pet eel in your in your yes. dorm room. Yes. This is how and, you know scientists. I mean, I had a roommate. My, my wife had... will kill me. But I got I got married right out of college. And well, we good went, thing because you know. I took the eel to Cleveland with me, and uh, you know I would I was in the laboratory a lot and. Uh, not attending to my eel uh, aquarium. What about, what about your wife? And my wife. <laughs> my wife cleaned out the aquarium once. And she, love it. and uh, when she put the water back in, it was in a, a gallon jug that had bleach in it. Oh, oh man. That's not good for eels. Is that that's that's? I mean, that this is kind bad. of the Donald Trump theory of COVID. You just got to put a little bleach in your blood, and you'll be fine. I mean, maybe she was trying right. to she was trying to That'll help him out, clear up all your problems. Right. Like, cleared up all my problems of having anything else to do but take care of my wife and and go down to the lab. Did maybe your so. did your eel have a name? <laughs> was it an accident? No, it had no name. Okay. Uh -huh. That's good. That so you had this thing for like five years, all the way through college. How yes. big? How big did it get? Well, it was like um, you know the size of a um, a rather large pencil. Oh, not too large. Like a you big know. chief. You know, when you had the big but chief tablet would, and the fat know. pencil that size, they're about a you foot. Know, I, I, I worked in the faculty club, and I would bring home little pieces of meat from the faculty club and put him on a pin hmm. and feed it to my eel so he ate well and he would come up you know he knew when he was going to be fed and uh, oh that's very cool that sounds a little heartbreaking yes. like you moved him all the way up to cleveland cleveland the mistake on the lake yeah. now i don't mean to get you know i don't want to get too much into because <clears throat> i have a wife and you know things can you know but when you're look did you have in the back of the, your mind that perhaps this wasn't an accident. <laughs> well, I don't want to I, you introduce know, suspicion. That, you know what I'm saying? I, I think that's inappropriate, but you know. I have to say that, that you know, as a biologist, I, I took it pretty well. Okay. Well, life and death. It's all part of the. <laughs> yes, right. But in seriousness. There's always so that, another eel. There's always another eel. Yes. And, and, and I, you I, know, I found out that, you know, they. They don't have that much of a unique personality. So if you get another eel, it, it behaves almost exactly the same. <laughs> Plug and play. Kind of like a fish. Sure. Now, uh, Joe, what you were telling us is that there in Maine, there is a thriving aquaculture industry. Uh, well, well, no, it's not thriving. It has, there's only Burgeoning. one person. Burgeoning. There's, <clears throat> embryonic. There's one person here. Who's gotten the okay to do it? Ah, so it's a new and, industry. Uh, her name is Sarah Rademacher, and she is the founder of American Unagi, hmm. a little startup company. Huh. And uh, you know the 
these glass eels used to be um, used to be uh, caught all up and down the coast and sold to China hmm. or to Japan, okay. where they aquacultured them. And uh, in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a um, there was a, a shortage of glass eels, and they were paying twenty thousand dollars a pound Ooh. for them. So, for the listeners out there, Joe, let me see if I'm following along here. This is a, the American eel, is what we're talking about. Yes, it is a catadromous fish. Is a, I love that term, not an anadromous fish, which. Right. which uh, breeds in fresh water and lives its adult life in salt water. This is the opposite. It lives its adult life in fresh water, swims to the Caribbean. I think this is amazing. I've never heard of like schools of these things, but clearly there's a migration to some unknown spawning ground out in the ocean. And the elvers are a sm is the is is the younger ver the teenage version of an American eel. It's not a different it's kind. The, it's even less than that. It's a, okay. it's a baby. It it's is a baby, baby eel, and and these things are enjoyed by a lot of people, and they're incredibly expensive. Apparently, twenty thousand dollars a pound when the when the market was down. Uh, boy, that that sounds like a good business to get into. Sarah's on to well, something. Well, uh, you can only do it in Maine. I I don't know whether South Carolina is still allowing it, hmm. but it, it was for a while the only two states that you could do it in because it's an endangered the the eel is now considered an endangered species. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, so there is no oh. commercial. So I mean, back in the day, and I'm sorry to go down this path. I know that your focus is on lobster, but were, 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 did people catch these eels at sea, uh, you know, historically? Were they netted? I just don't know anything about eel fishing or eel well, fisheries. I, as a, as a uh, teenager on Long Island, I had a friend who we would go out on his boat and we would, we would do what is called jacking for eels. Huh. Sort of like jacking for jacking for uh, deer that is if you if you shine a light right you know, but i you, understand that's highly illegal well in, in jacking for eels you, you go out in a, a small rowboat and you hang you hang a um, uh, a coleman lantern over the side uh hung on a oar that you put under the gunnels and uh, and so you hang it over there, and then you have a ten-time spear that you're holding, and you you see the when the eel, and you're out on the flats of of Long Island, uh, the bays of Long Island, and when the eel turns over, you see its white belly. You throw the spear at it, and uh, I, I think there are so many eels down there at that time that you inevitably come up with an eel and uh, you you take it off the and it squirms around in the bottom of the of the boat and when i bring it home my grandmother my latvian grandmother would cook them for me no one else in the family liked eel but i loved it and she would cook it for me how would she prepare and, it uh, well just in a fry pan you know you skin it and uh uh so 
you cut it up into chunks and um, you know it, it's got nice meat it, it's not too bony you know it, it flakes pretty well off of the each side of the uh, vertebral column and the spot of the uh, vertebral spines and uh, you know it's delicious and of course it's very oily yeah but I'm a I'm I come from Latvian stock and North German stock and uh, that that doesn't deter. Oh, they Joe. eat a lot of oily fish. You know, I'll tell you, Joe. I was over there in uh, Ukraine uh, in September of last year, and I'll tell you, I had a lot of oily fish as part of my uh, as part of my diet over yeah. there. So, I, I, I mean, it's obviously not near Latvia per se, but uh, I know what you mean. There's a different palate for it, right? Um, and I also hear they're great smoked. I hear that uh, a lot of people will yes, put them up in the smoke. Deal. Yeah, and smoked eel is a real delicacy in much of uh, much of Europe. Joe, do you have any? Uh, is there an understanding of what drove the decline of the population uh, of eels? Why they became endangered? Well, people were fishing for them, and you know, I mean, here. You know, what do we use eels for here up in Maine? Mainly we use them to catch other fish. Mm. They're used as bait. Okay. So do they uh, and did, did okay, so is it was it over exploitation? I was wondering if it was loss of habitat or was it damming of the rivers? Was there that sort of interference with their migration? Uh, well certainly Lake that's Santa. part of it. Okay. The uh, the fact that they can't but they can I mean I was up in uh uh, Canton, New York, which is really, uh, and these, uh, these eels can go overland. They can migrate overland. Hmm. Um, oh, flip and flop a little bit. From they can get to, they to can stream. get to ponds and lakes and seemingly in Scandinavia, they can get into, uh, your, uh, your well. <laughs> yeah, apparently. And take up residence. Uh, the last thing I want to know is when they spawn and they get out to sea, do they die like a salmon or do they return back to their original? Uh, as far as I know, they die out there. Oh, okay. So it's a one-shotter. Yeah, just one trip. Yeah. One, <clears throat> one trip for the yeah. books. Yeah, okay. Well, Joe, it's it's always such a pleasure to talk to, to you because there's just, as you said, we, we could talk for hours and just learn so much about fisheries and the science of fisheries and the research involved um so uh, you know you're welcome back on the show anytime um anytime you've got new results and new topics uh, to Absolutely. talk about just you know send us a text We're, we'll work you in but if people are interested in the subjects that you're talking about and, and particularly your work on lobster shell, is there a way that they can follow along other than your Facebook page, which does happen to work out, Gal, by the way? Yeah, I, um, I've been using a wiki for storing all my data. So I, I have a very rich... Uh, storage of information about lobsters in my wiki and uh, i have learned how to publish my wiki so i okay. i may very well actually publish some of that I have to organize it so that it's more accessible to the 
to the viewer. But um, and part of that, you know, I've done with these uh, spring 2019, fall 2019 uh, uh, web pages. But uh, and and some of those I sort of I publish a link to them on on my Facebook page. Okay, yeah, but, they're really great. And I do encourage seriously, folks, go go on Joe Joseph G Kunkel's Facebook page, click on this stuff, and look at this. You will immediately understand everything he's talking about in terms of what is happening with these with these animals and the, this disconfiguration disease of the shell. Um, it is important to understand it because it is, t- to me, um, if you're trying to understand what climate change is about and how does it affect the natural world, this is, a, this is just a simple microcosm of what adjustments in pH that occur with CO2 emissions, temperature change regimes, how it affects the living organisms that we all love. And in this case, we make a bunch of money off of them and we love to eat them and I sure as hell like to eat them. Uh, but it's important to, to see the physical effect of the changing environment. And I think you do such a great job and I love these sketch fab. Uh, the, just the ability to look at the variety of disease shells and get a feel for, wow, this is what you're looking for. This is what you're talking about. It's really great, Joe. Final thoughts? Thank you. And uh, I I hope you have a show with Sarah Rademacher. She's a... I I think she'd make a good show, too, talking about her her eels and American Yanagi. Okay. Okay, Sarah. And ladies and gentlemen, it's Dr. Joseph Kunkel, uh, Emeritus Professor from UMass Amherst and research scientist uh, with the University of New England, Biddeford, our go-to expert on Maine lobsters, uh, one of the great people working on the American shoreline to understand these really difficult trade-offs and and, and complicated natural resource issues. Uh, Joe, it's such a pleasure. Always fun to have you on. And thanks for telling us about your pet eel. That was my favorite part of the show. (laughs) I loved it. I brought a tear to my eye, too. <laughs> <laughs>